Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And I'm here today with my friend, Jonathan Shapiro. Jonathan is a CEO coach. Uh, he is a former uh, three-time CEO. He has uh, an MBA. He also has a really interesting master's degree in something called Applied Positive Psychology. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, among other things, was on my board of directors uh, at Return Path for at least two or three years, kind of in the early days of the business. So Jonathan, it was great to have you here. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your career and sure. uh, some of the things you've done along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll start kind of quickly, maybe we'll even skip over the first thing uh, you did, which was management consulting at McKinsey. Um, I was paid my dues. <laughs> I was a management consultant. It, is, it's, it feels like you're paying your dues, right? You're learning a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, your first internet job, Internet 1.0, which a lot of our guests for these Friday um, uh, in deep with interviews were around at the dawn of the internet. Um, your first one was a little different than a lot of other people. So you worked at United Media. Yep. Um, if I remember correctly, your your job was to bring Dilbert to the internet. Yes, that was, <clears throat> it was a little broader. It was bring all the comics okay. that United Media as a distributor of comics and columns represented to the internet. Um, and so we launched the Dilbert Zone and Snoopy.com and the Comic Zone in 1995. Uh, and in 1996, um, we had a top 50, according to Yahoo Internet Life, which only us, you know, OGs, internet OGs, remember what that is or was. Um, but according to Yahoo Internet Life, uh, the Dilbert Zone was a top 50 news information and entertainment site uh back in 1996 i i believe that i think <laughs> I, I think dilbert and movie phone were on that list together there you go <laughs> um so what so you had no internet experience in 1995 right no one did um you were hired i think you were a bd or a corp dev job um at united media um what was it like trying to figure out the internet? Um, and then how did you get from there to DoubleClick, which is where I met you? Yeah. Um, so it was great figuring it out. It was so exciting. Um, actually, when I had gone to business school, you know, everyone, orientation at business school, you get asked the question, okay, what are you going to do? And back in 1990, coming out of McKinsey and the media practice, I saw what I thought was the future, which was the intersection of media and technology. And I thought that was high definition cable. I thought the cable visions of the world were gonna own this space and you know, it was gonna ride on their pipes and all that was gonna happen. And uh, being an indentured servant to McKinsey after my um, business school, I went back to the firm and as, as that world was emerging, the media world and the technology world, it became more clear that the internet was the thing. So I get to United Media um, and we've got all these assets and 
Uh, I'm not your, I'm, I don't know if you know this, but Kevin Ryan was the CFO at the time. Right. No, I, because I remember that because that's how you ended up. Exactly. So Doug Stern, Kevin Ryan, myself, Benji Burdett, who was uh, an executive there, we're all sitting around going, okay, how do we leverage this IP? And the answer was, let's, let's get it on the internet. And I raised my hand and said, ooh, I want to do that. And they gave me the opportunity. So we, we built out the Dilbert Zone, the Comic Zone, et cetera. So you find yourself running a top 50 web property yeah. <laughs> uh, at, some, at some point early in your life and early in your career. Um, and, uh, you know, United Media, um, I, I actually don't even know what, it, I assume the company is still around. I assume it still does it's, what it does. Um, it does, but in a very different context. It was a division of Scripps Howard. Mm, okay. The Scripps. So, yeah. Scripps, okay. Scripps, now really the cable, you know, giant, they, HTT, this was funny, HDTV was starting um, at the same time this internet effort was starting. And we were so successful at United Media with the internet, they were sending their executives to basically talk to me and the team, how do you guys do this? <laughs> so it was kind of fun. Right. It's good to be one, like one step ahead of the rest of the class, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So you're in early internet content media. Um, there's this startup in New York called DoubleClick. Um, DoubleClick is trying to figure out what internet advertising is going to look like. Yeah. Uh, so I assume Kevin got there first as CFO, recruited you to join him. Um, how many employees were there when you joined? There were 107 when I joined, but I joined. The trajectory was as follows. And it's actually formative to this positive psychology stuff later in my career. Um, so Kevin leaves to join DoubleClick. He's employee number, I think, five. And uh, we have a conversation. He says, you should really consider coming. Um, and I'm like, ah, I'm not so sure. Things were going well at United Media, but we stayed in touch. So over that was in um, early 96. By late 1996, we'd had our hit show. Things were going really well. And in full disclosure, uh, Doug Stern, the CEO, calls me into his office at the end of 96, like in December, and says, uh, he says to me early in the day, hey, Jonathan, you're going to be around at the end of the day. I'm like, yeah, come see me. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, I'm getting a promotion. And so I walk into his office and he sits me down and he says, and I've never forgotten it. Jonathan, um, you have no constituency. I was like, wait, that doesn't sound like a promotion. What does that mean? I didn't use those words, but I was, I was a little flummoxed. I'm like, excuse yeah. me? And he repeated himself. And I was still not, it wasn't sinking in. And finally, he just says, Jonathan, no one wants to work with you. You got to go. Now, that was a wake up call. Wow. I yeah. actually never heard this story before. Yeah. So that was, that was very troubling. Um, I had a, literally, I was the leader of the team that was crushing the internet in 1996. Again, Scripps Howard was sending their internet executives to me and to our team to say, how do we do this? 
but I had a lot of bad leadership practices. I, I hadn't learned how to be a leader. I hadn't learned what management was like. Okay, I was so man, doing, management, management consulting teaches you a lot of things. It does not te teach you that. It does not. And I was, I was suffering from that lack of education. Right. Um, and so I actually left United Media. McKinsey wanted me back. <laughs> so I went back to McKinsey and was an internet specialist. This was funny. I'd kind of built a reputation in New York. In fact, Fred Wilson had become a friend because we did the yo-yo. He did the yo-yo dime deal, which was predicated on the Dilbert property that I helped write due diligence. Anyway, long story. I get to I get to McKinsey. I'm doing internet work, but it's clear that the firm at that point wasn't ready to do the kind of internet stuff at the scale that the internet required. And so eight months in, I'm having breakfast with Kevin and he says, you really, you, you really should come to DoubleClick. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to DoubleClick. Um, funny little sidebar, I had promised McKinsey two years Ennius Bergsma, great guy, McKinsey director, who hired me back, said, Jonathan, the only thing I'm worried about is you're going to leave before the two years is up. And I looked him in the eye and said, Ennius, I will not do that to you. I am here for two years. Eight months later, I had to walk into his office and say, I'm really sorry to do this, but I'm going to have to break that promise. And what I did to assuage basically my guilt was I worked for McKinsey formally for the next three months. Um, but I wasn't on their payroll. I was on DoubleClick's payroll and I was moonlighting. I was, I was during the day I was at DoubleClick. At night I was finishing up the Bertelsmann online project for McKinsey. So I was doing two jobs, but it worked out. Yeah. Well, and so so DoubleClick was uh, you know, I don't I don't it, I don't know if it's fair to say invented internet advertising, but certainly was one of a couple of companies that were you know real pioneers in in the network concept internet uh one hundred percent um you were there a bunch of years, and when I met you, which was kind of middle of your time at DoubleClick, I think or maybe toward maybe even the back half of it, um you had just engineered the acquisition of abacus, correct. Right, which was like an old school catalog data, direct mail, direct marketing company. And um, I think one, like right after I met you, either you ended up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or <laughs> DoubleClick ended up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and you were in the article somewhere yeah. as, <clears throat> as destroying people's privacy. Um, yep. So I know you had a couple different roles at DoubleClick, but let's focus on that moment for a minute. So I think, you know, today, the the world of privacy and data is so different than it was um, back then, and I mean, I, I I always tell people like assume you have no privacy and do the best you can to manage it. Right. Uh, that's that's um, you know maybe a little bit of a jaded a jaded view, but there's stuff that that becomes commonplace over time that you, people just sort of get used to um, that would have been considered ridiculously intrusive. 20 years ago or 23 or 24 years ago. And was. <laughs> and was at the, at the time. That's right. Because the, the worst thing that was going to happen to you before that was like someone was going to call you at dinner as a telemarketer and irritate you. Um, or you'd get a catalog in the mail. You didn't quite understand how right. that catalog got. <laughs> Yield and stream. <laughs> right. 
Um, but what, what was it like being in kind of the eye of that, of that storm? Like you didn't, you know, you said you came out of McKinsey, you didn't have leadership and management training. You certainly didn't have crisis management training. No. Um, wow. That, that, that was, that was, that experience was also very formative. Um, Kevin knew my story from United Media because he'd been there. So I made it a point to learn how to be a good leader and correct the mistakes I was making once I got um, to double click. That was being, I, I was having some success doing that. When the abacus thing hit, uh, so we, we, I led the effort to buy it. And the thesis behind it was, um, if you, if you know direct marketing, the best predictor of what you're going to buy in the future is what you have bought in the past, right? The only better predictor of what you might buy is what you were searching for. And the Google guys had figured that out. So we bought Abacus at DoubleClick because it Google was- Google hadn't figured it out in 1998 because there were no Google guys. Uh, no, by 90, yeah, they were figuring it out in the early 2000s, yeah, right? Over, Overture had figured it out or-, or Yeah, or, uh, Yahoo. And um, when we bought Abacus, the thesis was simple. If we could take the data, Abacus was a database of all the transactions from the thousand largest catalogs in the United States. So literally they had Jonathan bought uh, this t-shirt, this pair of sneakers, and this camping seat, you know, from L.L. Bean on this date, right? We figured if we could aggregate the data and we knew, the, we believed that all these catalogs were going online, we believed that all that data would be available in an online context for targeting advertising, we would have the technology of Dart would be supercharged and it would be a knockout blow for any of our competition. We were very excited about this. You were probably right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was one of the reasons Google bought DoubleClick. Um, it, was, it was for the data because at the time they bought it in 2003, DoubleClick was serving the majority of the ads on the internet. And if I serve an ad to you at, you know, a financial page, or if I serve an ad to you, you know, on a catalog site, they tell you different things, right? Um, so the thesis I thought, and we thought was right, but we immediately ran into the privacy buzz storm. And so, no, did not have crisis management um, uh, tools, but we learned pretty quickly. And I, I got to say, one of the leadership lessons I learned here was from Kevin O'Connor, one of the founders of DoubleClick, superb guy, right? I think everyone who was uh, part of DoubleClick with O'Connor around would tell you that they admired him greatly. So one of the things that happened and, and was a, just a great leadership lesson was as we were suffering the slings and arrows in an executive meeting, I said, I've, I, I guess I've seen this movie. I know how it goes. Someone's got to die on the sword. I guess you guys have to can me. And O'Connor said in that meeting, you did not make that decision alone. We made it as an executive team. And no one's fallen on their sword. We're fighting this through. 
And I was like, okay, I will follow you through any brick wall you ask me to run through. Um, and so, you know, leadership lesson, like get your teams back, be there for them. That was impressive. That's huge. Well, yeah. so let me, let me ask you to reflect on the business decision there for a second. So sure. in the rear view mirror, right? Knowing that like it was inevitable that data was going to be the internet and the internet was going to be data and privacy was going to change over people's perceptions were going to change over time. Was that the right thing to do at the right time? Was it too early? Should you have done more? Hard to say. Um, I don't know if the timing was perfect. So I, I, I'm not sure if we got it at the right time. If, if we waited, we might not have been able to get the asset. Um, but I think, I think what we could have, we could have done a couple of things much better. One was we could have acknowledged what, what was likely going to be a problem and prepared better. And two, I think we could have gone deeper, not only just providing, just riding along sort of all these catalog sites, but being there for them with an analytics tool and maybe like a Shopify kind of equivalent so that we were deeply embedded in, in their platform, which would have given us a more natural way to access and, and leverage the data on their behalf, which is what the Abacus Co-op was about. All right, so you leave DoubleClick and you then started a, uh, a run of being CEO at three different companies in three different spaces. Yeah. Uh, Lillian Vernon, uh, you know, sort of old school cataloger. Yeah. MediaWiz and Pet Care RX. Yeah. And these, so these were the years that you and I were in a CEO forum together. So these are you know, probably <laughs> the years I'm most very familiar with about, about your career. But I'd, I'd love to sort of think think with you about those three things. So you um uh you take over your first company as as CEO. Um you're still honing your leadership skills, as it were. Yeah. Uh, you have um, the founder, presumably still sort really? of present somewhere in the company. Very uh, present. You know, face, face of the brand, name on the door. And the company was owned by Strauss Zelnick at, at Zelnick Media at that point, wasn't it? Zelnick Media and the Rippled Holdings guys were the capital behind it. But Strauss and the Zelnick Media team led the way. Right. So Strauss, legendary media CEO, Lillian Vernon, queen of tchotchkes and catalogs. <laughs> <laughs> and enter Jonathan, fresh, first-time CEO. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like? And what was the biggest thing you got out of it? Um, so it was it was another great education. Part of part of both the double click and the Lillian Vernon educational part was my awareness that there was a lot for me to learn. So I was very open and eager to eager to figure out how to be a great leader, like watching O'Connor, watching Strauss, who is a fantastic leader. Um, and so at Lillian, you know, one of the things uh, that Strauss taught me and working for him taught me was um, I was the accountable party, right? There was, the, the, we were gonna run this business based on clear metrics and expectations. And we, we I was going to be held accountable to what those were. 
And the worst thing to do was to surprise Strauss, right? They're like, you just didn't want to do it. And I remember- You never want to surprise your board, your shareholders. Exactly. You particularly don't, don't want to do it. You particularly don't want to um, surprise him, but- Yeah, but he was great. One of the things that was a great model was he wanted to be disagreed with. He, he didn't object to you having strong opinions, hopefully loosely held, right? But he taught me it was okay to argue with the boss, right? If the, if the focus was what's the best path forward. So the great example there was he wanted me to do radio advertising or he wanted us to do radio advertising. And I thought that was the most terrible idea ever because I didn't see how it was going to really work for the Lillian Vernon catalog. We had a debate. He said, I want you to test it. We tested it. And what we discovered was it was only effective in really high high Lillian Vernon density markets, right? It wasn't a, wasn't a great tool. And he was able to say, you, you were right, Jonathan, we shouldn't roll this out. And that was, you know, Strauss is right a lot. Right? Yeah. So for him to be able to acknowledge that, hey, my young CEO first time got this right was very powerful, right? Um, the, I actually... Over time, we expanded in, in the platform. Um, Rick Bennett became the CEO of uh, Direct Holdings, which held Lillian Vernon and the Time Life uh, property. I ran Lillian Vernon for it. And Rick was another great leader. He taught me uh, to be requiring, how to be requiring and supportive in the same way, right? So the model of, you know, get me my sales or, you know, that's not being requiring, right? In his model, which Rick taught me was being requiring was establishing, this is what excellence looks like team. Let's go get it. Let's require excellence of ourselves and let's measure ourselves against it. And then your job as the leader, once you've defined it, is to make sure that the people around you have what they need to achieve it. If they're not achieving it, you have to figure out if it's a will, a hill, or a skill problem. And then if it's a hill, you've got to clear it. If it's a skill, you've got to try and coach to it. If it's a will, you've got to inspire. And if you can't do those, then you've got to make a change, right? Um, and that was a very powerful leadership lesson. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the, the, most, the most important thing that happened to me there was when we sold Lillian Vernon. So we... We took it from an, a catalog company. We got its online sales up from 5 million to 80 million. We sold the business. And the team at Lillian Vernon, I, I was gonna, I was gonna be moving on. That, that, that was kind of known. And my uh Michelle Gerskovich, my head of uh merchandising, comes into my office in the two-week transition period and she says, you got to come to the, you know, the conference room. The new CEO is running amok. We need your help. So I get up out of my chair and I run down. And it was my team, the Lillian Vernon team, and they threw me a party. And, and so I hope, I hope you called whatever his name was from United uh, <laughs> and said, I got a, I got a constituency now. Yeah. Um, I didn't, but that's what had happened. And I, I, I was so grateful that 
I'd had the opportunity to learn how to be a good leader. And then I'd developed those skills. And that was sort of like my state. That was the proof point. I'd done well at DoubleClick. That was the point where I felt like, okay, I'm not quite O'Connor or Zelnick yet, but this team will follow me in that I've earned that. And that was really powerful and, and meaningful. So if you think about sort of your, the next two companies that you ran, MediaWiz and PetCare, and you talk about them together or separately, um, how did you how did you sort of hone the craft um, while learning different businesses? And MediaWiz, I guess you're familiar enough with it from Double. Oh, yeah. PetCare RX, like that's to- completely different from anything you had done in your career. Yeah, uh, it was it was pet care was related because it was an online retailer and through the abacus and and then MediaWiz basically selling to those guys marketing services. I I developed some of the understanding, um, <clears throat> but MediaWiz was a real leadership challenge um, in the sense that it was the Lake Capital team had put together four companies, and there weren't four CEOs there were four founding teams. Like all of them had at least two, one had three founding partners that were still in the organization, right? And so it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. My my model for leadership at that point had become, can I inspire followership, right? Lillian Vernon had sort of, what I'd learned is, I want to be able to inspire this team to follow the follow the vision that I've created with them um, and the strategy, the path towards that vision. Uh, can I inspire these founders in the same way? Um, and got there in April of 2007. I was promised by the late capital guys, you have 90 days to figure out a strategy. But the markets are kind of hot. We may want to move quickly here. 30 days in, um, uh, Kevin Rowe, who was the operating partner, great guy. Kevin calls me. He's like, Jonathan, we're having a lot of inbound interest. We're going to go to market in May. We need the strategy now. (laughs) So we put together a strategy. We went to market and um, we were crushing it. And by the way, the founding teams were doing that. I was I was still learning the business, getting acquainted, you know, you know, getting up to speed. Uh, but a large portion of our revenue was driven by subprime lending. I don't know if anyone remembers what happened in late 2007, early 2008, but the capital markets for you know subprime lending, mortgages, and the rest of it, it, it went away. And so literally. We had term sheets at very attractive prices to sell the business. They all, we had to pull them. We had to stop the deal because when our subprime lending clients stopped marketing and literally they just stopped. They just stopped, yeah, because they they all blew up. Exactly. Um, We we couldn't explain that and retain the value. So uh, we we pulled it. And they were saying, we'll be back in early 2008. And obviously that didn't happen. Right. So this, this, which was a rocket ship of growth, literally from the time we put out our first SIM to the first uh, sale meeting, 
buyer meeting, we had to raise, we raised our forecasts because we were just on fire. That happens all the time with companies who are talking to private equity buyers. Exactly, exactly. You know that 130 we said we were going to do? No, we're going to probably do 135, 140. Um, And so we went from rocket ship to real crisis. And that was when, you know, some of the the lessons I'd learned had to come into play and I had to learn some new ones. So how do you stay positive when literally the four founding founding leaders teams, founding teams were excited because they were going to get a second bite at the apple and it was going to be big, right? And that all goes away. So how do you stay positive? How do you keep the team energized and those kinds of things? Um, and so it started with, I had to create, I had to create some hope for the future. Right. And I, and I'm borrowing from what, what I eventually learned from my master's degree, but hope theory is you've got to have a goal. Um, you've got to have a pathway to the goal and you, you've got to have eight, the people involved have to have agency. So the goal is the vision. Here's where we want to go. If you're the CEO, you you are accountable for your organization for this. They got to know where you're going. What's the vision? They got to know how they're going to get there. What's the strategy? You don't necessarily have to create it on your own, but you have to make sure everyone understands the strategy. And then it only works if everyone in the organization really sees what's their part. How does how does even you know the billing clerk from your linked you, you know your uh, linked ads product? How does she understand her role in this whole thing? And you got to drive that down. And so we started there and we started painting a picture for the future of how MediaWiz could become this great organization. And we we did that sort of 07 rocket ship uh, crashing to earth in 08. We were able to build back the business at its peak, it was about $130 million. We got it back to $120 million by 2010, but it was never going to be as profitable because of the, the subprime marketplace is very profitable. And we didn't have that available to us anymore. So um, frankly, the the price tag that the late capital guys wanted wasn't likely. I brought them a deal it wasn't going to be what they wanted. I didn't, That's I know, yeah, I no longer really saw a path to what, I didn't know how to create what they wanted. So when when the Goldman guys came around and wanted me to run, they were looking for a CEO for PetCareRx. I moved on. I was like, okay, let's give that a shot. All right. So PetCareRx for a couple of years, e-commerce. E-commerce. Totally different, totally different application of it. Yeah. What was, your, uh, what was your sort of biggest biggest learning from that few years? Yeah. Uh, well, some business-related, some positive psychology-related. Because way back at Lillian Vernon in 2004, I had said to my wife, one day I'm going to go be Dr. Happy. And she said, "Who? what do you know about being happy and who's going to listen to you? And I was like, those are two interesting and potentially hostile questions. Um, But I started as part of my leadership learning 
really digging into the field of positive psychology, started by the book, The Paradox of Choice, where at Lillian Vernon, I needed I needed help figuring out how much choice around a product that we'd had a hit product, the mini tote, like, should we do, we had three of them, red, white, and black, you know, leather handle. And like my chief merchant wanted to do five fabrics and 20 colors. And that felt like too much. Anyway, read that book, found the field of positive psychology, saw its application to leadership and said, okay, I'm going to study this. Was on my own until 2012, reading everything I could get my hands on from Seligman, Fredrickson, Ariely, you know, Tal Ben-Shahar. If you read anything in positive psychology, these are the guys and gals. Um, and so I was reading all this material. I got to Pet Care Rx and I was like, okay, let me see if I can fix Pet Care Rx, who'd been around for a long time, but had never made any money, right? It was an online retailer. It was focused on um, pet medication. Mostly it was flea and tick and um, heartworm medications, but you could get a prescription filled through uh, Pet Care Rx. And so how can I apply what I've, what I've learned into this context as well? And so one of the things was, in addition to having you know, a vision, mission, and strategy, that mission part, right? Hope theory is what's the vision, what's the strategy, and how do you create agency? The mission part, that's this is the Simon Sinek stuff, is critically important. It's like, why does everyone come to work every day? And here's how we made that operative at Pet Care Rx. It wasn't that exciting to come to work every day to say self lean tick medication, right? But what was exciting was the joy that people got from their pets and the love that they exchanged with their pets. So what we came up with was Pet Care Rx was in business to add a little love to the world. That was our mission. Um, and it resonated. Um, you know, my, my call center, people would call and they answered the phone. Hi, this is, you know, Frank. How can I add a little love to your day today? And people were like, that's great. <laughs> um, by the way, the way that was operative was we figured we were there to help people have healthy pets. We did that about four or five million times every year. Every healthy pet, another wag of the tail another meow, that was a little love. That's how we added love to the world. It's such a great way of, um, of thinking about how to add purpose uh, to a business where maybe on the surface, it doesn't look like there's any. Uh, and I, I'm a big believer that every business can draw a straight line to a higher purpose. Um, sometimes it may take you a little while to discover it or articulate it. Yep. It's super important. Super important. And it's, if you believe in this uh, model of leadership, which is how can you inspire followership? How can, how can you inspire the team to follow you where you think collectively is the best place to go? Having a great purpose is, is critical. So talk about the decision to go um, to get the masters, the second masters, and to stop being a CEO and become a coach. Okay. Um, so 
I'd done all this reading in positive psychology, and frankly, despite having some academic success, I'd never enjoyed school. Um, but I was loving the self-study of this field. And the University of Pennsylvania offered a master's in applied positive psychology on the weekends. I was like, okay, <laughs> sign me up. So in 2000 and uh, September of 2012, I, I joined that program while I was running Pet Care Rx. And my wife will tell you that for a year, all she saw was the back of my head because I would leave at 7.30. I'd be at Pet Care Rx from 8 to 7, home at 7.30, eat dinner. My young kids were already, have they've had dinner, they're off. And then I'd go back to work doing schoolwork. Um, but that was, that was sort of the catalyst that answered my wife's questions. What do I know about being happy and who's going to listen to me? <laughs> right. Um, and what I discovered was over this, both having to learn how to be a good leader and then really experiencing the most joy from the realization that if I was helping my team succeed, that's that was my source of joy. That's what brought me happiness. That was my, that was like the 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 light within me. That's what I wanted to do. And in December of 2013, I'd had a disagreement with the Pet Care RX board. They wanted me to go one direction, which I told them they wanted me to compete with Amazon on price. And I was like, I, I how? I do not know how to do that. I had an idea that I said all I needed was another $15 million and we and we could really make this work. And they're like, oh, we're not so sure, Jonathan. So we parted ways. And it was then that I said, okay, now's the time to go be Dr. Happy. And my, my real incarnation of that was, how do I help other leaders be their best leaders? And that's 2014, January, I became an executive coach. So... The so you have these, you know, sort of couple of threads coming together here in your life, right? You have your development as a leader, uh, right? And going from sorry, Jonathan, you got no constituents <laughs> to <laughs> cultivating followership. Um, you have this thread and this this academic, but also very practical learning um about um what drives happiness and fulfillment. Um they come together in the form of, of you as a coach. Yep. Um, how do you approach your work when you're coaching a CEO? And, and here's why I asked the question. We, you know, at Bolster, we help CEOs find coaches and we help them find mentors. And we define the two a little bit differently. We define a coach as someone who is going to help you be the best version of you. Mm-hmm. And we define a CEO mentor as someone who has been there, done that as a CEO and can help you figure out how to do your job, uh, right? Help you navigate the, the craft of being a CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, there are coaches who have been CEOs before and a lot of coaches who have not been CEOs before. Yeah. So you're one of the ones that has. Do you, if you buy into our framework, when you work with a client, do you approach them as a coach? as a mentor, 
as both situationally or as either situationally? Do you ask them what they're looking for? Like, how do you think about that? So I actually approach it in combination. And I think actually my website still says I'm a mentor coach, <laughs> um, surprisingly. Uh, so here's what here's how that works. The, my methodology is I, I ask them to bring the issues and problems that they're facing, the most difficult things that they have to solve. And then we discuss some of the frameworks that I've, I've experienced and used. Uh, and I, I tr if I'm doing a good coaching job, I'm asking them the questions that allow them to discover the best answers for themselves, right? Occasionally, and I draw this distinction, I will tell them, okay, now I'm going to consult, which is like being a mentor. And what, the, and I, I clear this before we start our coaching relationship. What that means is I have seen this movie. I believe I have a really good answer for you. So I am strongly suggesting that you do X, right? But that's a very different position than what do you think the best answer is? What options have we talked about? What are you considering? You know, if you think about, and I ask my CEO clients a lot, how are you inspiring followership? What is it that you're doing that is going to have your lieutenants wanting to run through a brick wall like I would do for Kevin O'Connor? What is having them want to do that for you, right? So the difference, I do think there's a distinction. I do a little of both, but when I am mentoring or consulting, I declare it. You declare it. And they expect it to That's, be declared. Right, right. That is a very, very good practice. Um, Jonathan, this has been a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, I love your journey. I love the fact that you have found happiness in the <laughs> studying and now in the giving forth of happiness to others. Um, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Can I give you one compliment? So look. Grit, Angela Duckworth wrote the book. It is, it is the combination of passion and perseverance, right? And sitting on your board, being a friend, being in your CEO peer group, having lived with you, you know, for the last 20 plus years, you epitomize grit. And, and I know it took 20 years to get return path from the idea to a successful exit. But that's sort of a great example, watching you literally at the precipice a number of times where it could have gone very badly, have the ability to focus forward, what are the solutions, what's available to us, and lead your team, inspire your team through that, really inspirational, taught me a lot. Wow, well, thank you. That means, that means a lot coming from anybody who I've spent a lot of time with over the years, but, uh, but particularly from you. So thank you for that. And thanks Pleasure. for today. All right, sir. Talk to you.